Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Samara Hernandez, for the introduction to our guest today, Kate Shillow Beardsley, partner at Hannah Gray. Hannah Gray is a first check venture fund investing in founders reimagining everyday experiences to improve work and life. In this chat, we went down a lot of fun rabbit holes, like what we could all learn from Martha Stewart, what New York was like in the late 2000s, early 2010s as VCs and startups were kind of coming into the picture, the creator economy, and investing in secondary and tertiary markets. Without further ado, here's Kate. Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. What was your initial attraction to consumer brands and media? I always had, I think like most consumers, I always just had an affinity for brand. I'd say also now looking at just how the environment has changed, I feel like I'm one of those people who would have always been the new user. Like I wanted to see what was new. I just had a curiosity for how brands are created. And I worked as a chief of staff to Martha Stewart and certainly got to see things incubate firsthand coming out of a brand like that. Well, I think it was a had their 25th anniversary when I worked for them. And so it was relatively robust at that point. Omnimedia, so multiple creations were sort of sourced across radio, TV, magazines, books. And so the idea of um, creating something and then distributing it differently was sort of fascinating. But seeing how the, the sausage was made at a group like that, that was just like creative mecca was really interesting. I think that just led to, you know, being in New York, media is, was just a pillar of what the industry, you know, produced um, in that ecosystem. And so as an early employee at the Huffington Post, again, got to see how things were made and how we were really pushing the envelope on the, you know, first internet newspaper and what did that mean and how did that sit with consumers and sit with just the flow of traditional media and, and that positioning, which was really fascinating to be a part of that. If you remember, you know, there was, what was the small paper going to do, you know, to the takedown of the Huffington Post and how are we going to be supportive of those ecosystems? So it was just, again, a fascinating position. And then at Lira Hippo, obviously now can say that the firm focuses on brands, but at the beginning, it wasn't very clear what we were going to be good at or what we we're going to do. And and I think everyone at the firm had an affinity and an understanding and it and got really excited when we, we talked to brands. And so that, I think that led to, you know, just more of it. And, and we certainly hit the market at the time where brands were coming on and looking for venture capital dollars. And there was a different movement in terms of what a tech company could be. It was fun to touch something, to feel something, to try it on. You know, we didn't really have that uh, experience always in previous companies. So it was just kind of a different nuance. What were some of your learnings just working for Martha and how has that kind of impacted you when you think about in consumer content and commerce? 
Yeah, she absolutely was the pioneer of, if you think about the celebrity brand now, how common that is, a celebrity sort of start with their perfume extension or whatever. Like, I mean, she had been doing it long before anyone else. If anything, she started out as an author, a caterer, and then, um, and that just expanded into things for the home as a natural progression. It wasn't, she was sort of a celebrity second, you know, but it was an interesting amalgamation of content and product. And she always had relationships with department stores. And so there was the ability and the vehicle to be able to sell and an audience to have through that. Cause that was obviously the, where you went to go to buy things because Amazon wasn't enough yet in the same kind of prowess that it is now. The training I received um, under Martha's tutelage was that anything that you found inspirational could be produced somewhere as either content or a product. I remember we were having uh, drinks actually at Grand Central Station one day. I don't know why, but it was it was fun. And so we were drinking um, peach bellinis. That's right. And we were looking up at the ceiling and, uh, and she was doing a rug line with Safavea at the time. And I was like, oh my gosh, this would be actually a great rug. Like if there's a way that you could, you know, capture the magic of the Grand Central Station ceiling, which... If you've been there, you know it's very turquoise and it has like gold specks and it's just really dramatic and gorgeous and iconic. And she was like, yes, absolutely. Let's let's work on that. Let's go, you know. And so that was the point is everything can be inspirational and you can draw an inspiration anywhere. It's just how you package it and how you reproduce it for your audience. And so that could be in the form of you know, on her radio show or in a magazine or, you know, displayed in something like a textile. So it's just whether it was up to you to figure out how to deliver it to your audience. And I think that was really great apprenticeship that I had in terms of getting that vision down for anything. And she always had her camera with her, right? This is pre-iPhone. And we always sort of were armed with the ability to document something, whether it was like a curve of a chair or something to pull into something else. Yeah, I'm super grateful for having that training. Yeah, that's awesome. What influenced you going into venture capital, joining Lair Hippo as one of the founders? I think probably every VC says this, you know, it's like right place, right time. I would say probably now people who are going into venture capital go in with the uh, intention of being a venture capitalist. But Yeah, it was more because Ken Lear and Ben Lear saw the opportunity to expand on their angel investing practice and really build a firm. And that was just the timing. Uh, 2009, people had money in their mattresses. New York was, you know, if you were walking to our office from 14th Street, which I did every morning, it was uh, boards were in front of buildings, right? It was a really weird time. And much like right now, it was a crisis vintage. We just didn't, I'd say understand it as much. And Ken certainly did. He was like, this is the time, this is the time to build the firm. And so he, you know, he and Ben are always very high energy and it was an amazing opportunity to just uh, structure something relatively quickly and just start to take meetings and see what we were going to invest in. So that really is, is to his credit and Ben's credit to seeing the timing of the market and knowing that if we produced a vehicle that could allow us to expand on their angel investing, we'd be able to see more and work with more companies. It wasn't let's build a giant franchise. But that's what it grew into because that's what, you know, the team was great at and we, and we had the drive to do it. So uh, it's a right place, right time. And certainly right time with New York being at the beginning of the tech ecosystem. Talk to us a little bit about what the ecosystem was like because it was pretty early in the New York venture capital world. And maybe how did you have to build a community and infrastructure in New York for venture capital and obviously meeting startups, which you don't really have 
I'd imagine nearly the amount of content or the amount of resources that you do today. It was really fascinating. It's hard to, I didn't know what was happening when it was happening, right? You know, you're sort of in it and you're like, oh, this is, but I did, I did get that special feeling, you know, that we're onto something dynamic, that this is unique and this is not for, this, not everyone's having this right now, you know, and I did get that it was on the edge of something. It felt very progressive and pushing the envelope. I, that's a way to distill the feeling. I was often, you know, I was like, I'm not exactly sure what direction we're going in. And I don't think anyone was, but the idea was that there was enough people looking for the same kind of inspiration and seeking one another out, which I think is the component that was essential to that ecosystem. I give Betaworks a huge amount of credit. Uh, You know, Andy Weissman and John uh, Borthwick were spearheading that. And that's actually where we had our offices out of in the beginning of the Lear Hippo days. So just being a part of that ecosystem. And they were the drivers. They were the ones inviting people in. They were doing these brown bag lunch and learns. It was very casual because it had to be. There was no infrastructure for anything at that point. You just kind of showed up. And if you knew one person, which was probably John or Andy, you could just sit down and work for the day and you know essentially build connections. Looking back on those early days and seeing who came to those brown bag lunches and the names, it was fascinating of that kind of open uh, access because those big names that were coming through had the same level of seeking out what was happening here, you know, looking at that from a curiosity standpoint. So to being at the center of that every day was just fascinating because you had um, professors from NYU coming in, you had investors from San Francisco coming in, you had um, thought leaders and entrepreneurs working at Google who were trying to experiment with something on the side. And so it was just this level of just be here and uh, take it in and see what you can derive from it, which was very organic and not at all forced. There weren't newsletters. It wasn't like, come join us and have a sign-up sheet and there's an attendance. It was just, you knew someone, there was already trust built from you know the dot-com days for a lot of these guys. And it was just come and talk about what you're working on, uh, which I think is just the best way. It was so organic and collaborative, which I think a lot of tech ecosystems that we're seeing across the country now are having that same moment. You know, when I moved to Colorado, it was like that too. Galvanize was exactly like that. Just come and be here and share and see what you can learn from others that are here that are seeking out the same kind of inspiration. So um, I think that's a really natural way to get an ecosystem going and then build trust with your peers. I had on Will McClellan, who's based out of New York, very long New York. One runs Elizabeth Street Ventures. And, and he said um, on the show, you know, if you want to go and build a tech company, go to Silicon Valley. But if you want to build anything consumer related or a consumer company, New York is the place to be. How do you think about ecosystems? And especially since you spent a lot of time in New York, and, and we'll, we'll certainly get to your time in Denver as well. And, and obviously, how you think about just um, other ecosystems. But how do you think about sourcing? How do you think about where consumer is and maybe like the center of consumer per se? Yeah, I think the center is actually moving around right now. I don't know that there is a center. I'd say the same of tech too. You know, I don't think, I mean, COVID has been incredible forcing function of you know, you're rushing to be where you want to be, whether it's with your loved ones or testing out a new environment to work from. The constraints of how and why have changed so much. I do believe that at one point, you know, New York was the epicenter of a lot of activity for that. Arguably LA, it can be um, just as influential for different reasons. 
But then you have these pockets all over the country and it, and it really comes down to the entrepreneur and the why for them. You know, if they're building something uh, specific and the needs are derived from that ecosystem or the partners that they have or those relationships, you know, I think before you had to get business done on a certain level and a certain flow with that ecosystem. And the, arguably, I don't know if that's going to be a requirement anymore. I certainly think you have to have ties into New York, LA to be able to execute on certain partnerships. But, you know, if we're looking at if the progression is moving to, you know, digitally native brands, then also omni-channel as part of a way to survive and thrive. Does that also mean you need to have relationships with Target and Walmart and where do those come from? And so it's just, I think it's more just the power of the person and the network and your ability to move into those channels relatively fluidly, you know, versus you just have to have an office in Soho to matter. I don't think that's going to be a requirement going forward at all. And I would argue if I was a founder, I would want to go find pods of creativity more than I'd really care for. Like that would be the thing I would be seeking out is how can I get inspiration from others? You know, and I think about that from back in my days of working at Martha Stewart, you know, some of the best creative talent were in these very tight-knit groups of other creatives and deriving things from artists or, you know, is it streetwear? Like, what are those pockets that you're getting inspiration from and who's inspiring you and making sure that you're spending time and seeking that out probably more than, again, like where you're officing. That's a great point. Really focusing on who you actually are working with and who actually you actually get inspiration from, no matter where you're located. Or maybe that means you have to make a trip somewhere and live somewhere else to just seek that creativity. Yeah. And I think creatives get a ton of inspiration from travel. And, you know, so I think that's also probably been a huge handicap for, you know, people right now. But I, I remember, you know, working with Martha and also Kenny and like the, the best ideas came after they had had a bit of a vacation and a trip because there was inspiration. Uh, so I think that's probably true for most entrepreneurs and creatives. Yeah, it's a really fascinating. Founders in a lot of ways are also artists, right? 100%, especially the consumer. You're really leaning on a brand and a design and a, an opinion. I love that. Why did you decide to leave New York? It had been something in the back of my mind for a while. You know, I still think of myself as a New Yorker. Like it's still part of my personal identity in a way. I mean, I'm from Connecticut originally. So the East Coast is, and I went to college in the East Coast. So it's just, it's so in my world. Like, and I, if I stay away too long, I, I sort of get crabby, but I love the mountains. I had, uh, my best friend is from Denver. And so that would say was the original reason of just exploring the ecosystem. And, you know, now I live in Denver because my husband is from Colorado and it was sort of a choice of, of this or New York. And we chose to raise our family here. And the company that I worked for at the time, Galvanized, Galvanized Ventures, was located and headquartered in Denver. So it was honestly very, it was so much easier to have relationships in San Francisco and New York by being headquartered somewhere in the middle. But when, you know, you were required to sort of have FaceTime in those ecosystems on the regular. Galvanize also has eight campuses across the country. And so when I was working for that team, the requirement to go to Austin or Phoenix, uh, Seattle, Denver, Boulder, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, like New York was one of the players for that. And so I lived through this, I would say, 
wave of tech ecosystems taking shape in these other environments, which I found fascinating. So I felt as though I could go back to New York and sort of check in, but I was on the ground floor of what was happening in Austin, on the ground floor of what was happening in you know, Denver, Boulder, and Seattle. And, and that was, I'd say, again, a right place, right time. And I didn't want to miss that. What were some of your learnings since you have this amazing experience at Galvanize traveling to these eight different emerging uh, startup ecosystems? Were there any like nuances between maybe like a Phoenix or an Austin or that you just found like really interesting with how the ecosystem has developed? Yeah, um, every ecosystem is absolutely personal to itself. Uh, I don't think, and I'm giving credit to the Galvanize team, understanding that you know, you couldn't just replicate the brand that was created in Denver and assume that it would be adopted in the same way in an Austin or a Phoenix. Like each, you could build a beautiful space, um, but you had to hire talent locally. You had to get that local feel and flair and really draw upon that if you were going to build a community and, and build a brand locally there. Arguably, if I'm analyzing and I'm using air quotes, the community of co-working spaces and how there was a trend in 2014 of them popping up everywhere, you know, obviously Weirwork was the spearheading that, but then you had, you know, the Riveter coming out of Seattle that was for women and obviously had the wing in New York, like things like that, that were, we are going to be a community for said type of entrepreneur. And what does that feel like? And so arguably, and then there was a lot of mom and pops who owned real estate buildings in those areas that then would try to, um, build their own co-working space as well. So what was unique to that? And I think the most successful were the ones that adopted the culture authentically and and made it their own. And you could see that in who was showing up, right? In the galvanized Denver campus. If you go back to 2014, when I joined that team and looked at the members that were there and looked at those members now and where they are with their businesses, they built really big businesses. And I think that was just, again, the brand attracted a natural type of entrepreneur who, again, was looking to get community from its peer set and just identify that this was the place they wanted to be because it was so valuable to them. And that I think it just can't be, again, cookie cutter place. You have to really work with a community and understand exactly what they're doing. And if anything, we were just the infrastructure trying to build up on the personality that was already there. What was some of the differences or some of the learnings from your time at Lair Hippo and then your time at Galvanize? And how have each of those experiences maybe impacted how you look at companies and how you invest? Yeah, so I'm going to frame this in that I'm a generalist. I've always been a generalist and we are we were at Lear Hippo too. But since this is obviously a consumer-focused podcast, I want to focus it more on that. So I'd say having lived through the D2C movement and then the digitally native brand movement, there's so many new interesting trends that are emerging in the consumer space. And that I think is really fascinating and how I think about my time at different places and how obviously we're thinking about things at um, Hannah Gray. So you know, the D2C was all about building purpose-driven and efficacy-based, you know, brands, cutting out the middleman and aligning values with consumers. Like if you remember, Tom's was really kind of the first, the one-for-one model, which then Warby adopted. And that was really inspirational when I remember talking to younger millennials of like, I want to go get a job at a company that gives back. Like that was actually really inspirational for hiring talent and attracting 
people to the brand as the why and how you would explain it to your friends as to why you owned, you know, Everlane products or something to that effect. There was this deeper sense of responsibility that started to emerge from that kind of brand. And then DNVBs were arguably, you know, brands built for the web, e-commerce experience first. You know, they understood how to build brands through social and they were, uh, I would say, unapologetically opinionated, which helped them stand out against the incumbents and get noticed, right? You know, and this was when, and it's hard to think back already, but remember when Instagram started rolling out ads and you would like, you know, and it was ad free for a while. And then these brands had a way of feeling like they were in your beautiful feed, but then you were having an advertisement. So that, remember that shift of that brand starting to take over and how Instagram and Facebook were places you were going to discover new products. That was like revolutionary at that point. You weren't advertising in traditional mediums anymore. Like this was the medium. And then also, you know, that spawned brands like Billy and Lively um, and then moving sort of the progressing the D2C to a brick and mortar experience. Can we test out a brick and mortar what do our companies or customers feel about that? Can we do omni-channel? You know, so there was just this, I would say, specificity that was happening across that, you know, um, you're seeing it in swimwear, you're seeing it in shoes, like everything could be, I'd say, refreshed from a digital first experience. And from an evaluation standpoint of what was then, I'd say, venture backable, that I'd say it became very different around is this something that's going to have massive amount of scale or is it just an incredibly wonderful lifestyle business that, you know, what's the long-term value here for that strategy? And also I think opened up the channel for different types of funding for those companies. It wasn't just you need in order to succeed, attract specific funds to back you. There just became this um, wealth of resources to support those companies and, you know, credit lines, like that sort of thing in terms of product. It was very clear that I think venture capital was not the only and probably in some cases the best way to fund that type of business. So I think of that as a, as a key point in my memory of being like, okay, this is going on a different path. And then from what's coming now and something that Jessica, my partner at Hannah Gray and I are thinking about is, you know, we're seeing the influencer space mature from when it was sort of coming up, you know, again, in that Instagram forward. It's moving now, obviously, to the creator economy, which I'm sure has been well talked about on this podcast. Also, you know, we're thinking about it more from the standpoint of there is this interesting intersection. We have, you know, influencer creations, and this is a springboard to what a new wave that we're thinking about is community-driven commerce and it will spawn what we believe is the next generation of brands and something that we're calling is C2C, creator to community. And I think that's where this will progress is that the creators are going to be the new brands and how are they going to stand up against and what place is for them in the consumer facing economy against the incumbents is something we're looking at and watching for. What are the opportunities that you think are still left out there? I mean, it seems like there's still a lot in terms of monetization. Isn't that many ways yet to, as a creator, to be able to monetize? How do you think about monetization and your overall just like thoughts around opportunities? Yeah, so creators are um, obviously monetizing their creativity in new ways. It's not just selling things that they create, example, like NFTs, artwork, whatever, you know, they can monetize their actions, you know, like a, a birthday wish on Cameo, for instance, or, you know, leaving a comment on social or decisions as part of their day, like what shirt should I wear? You know, there's just this fascinating ecosystem of essentially 
how they're monetizing their audience, you know, and I think we remember if you have an audience, like what can you sell into that and how can you work with that audience in terms of participation? So I think the sky's the limit. It's just how much can you test your audience? You know, where are they going to follow you? And is it going to be interesting and exciting and novel? They're pretty used to what they're seeing right now. And so the idea of how can you surprise and delight them in new ways? And I think that comes down to the creativity and again, the artistry of the creator is how are they inspiring you in a new engagement? You know, and so I do appreciate that it's it's laced with experience and it's also could be product, you know, and it's this amalgamation of kind of going between things, which sorry to pull back and draw back on Martha, but like, that's what she was doing. You know, it was, there would be this teaching moment. There would be a book you could buy. There could be a magazine you could garner inspiration from, but it was, it was all encompassed in what she found interesting and how she chose to display it. And I think it's going to go back to some of that is, you as a audience member will flow freely through the channels of that creator. However you feel as though they're authentic to that creator. If it's interesting and inspiring, you'll go there and it's up to the creator and arguably the technology platforms that are supporting them to be able to capture you and retain you. And, and I would say also, you know, from a a monetization standpoint, bring you into the fold seamlessly. So it feels as though it's built correctly for that type of experience, if that makes sense. And I think that's the fun part that we're in right now is the building of that is like, what is that going to look like? And in five years from now, we're going to look back and remember, like, remember when we didn't have that behavior channel? Like that's, that's what we're in that flux right now, which is really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. And how do you think about as well for a creator, like building an audience, because it seems like on a lot of the traditional maybe social media channels, it's all about building an audience. But then there's now, it seems like there's shift towards community, which is actually the creator is almost just a vessel in order to meet other people that are like-minded or has the same interests, if that makes sense. How are you thinking about that kind of transition and how you think about maybe audience and community and kind of unpacking those things? I would say, you know, influencers are creative individuals and opinionated voice and they produce, you know, beautifully uh, created content across many social channels, right? So these communities can exist on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Snapchat, and it's it's creating these cult followings and exactly right is the next layer to that following of just being an observer is interacting in that community. And then what does that look like? Exactly. It's a vessel. And you could say too, like we saw this actually with Food 52 when we made that investment at Lear Hippo there was this idea that Amanda and Merrill were the, you know, obviously the inspiration, uh, Amanda being a food editor of the New York Times. And so she certainly brought clout to that. And obviously Merrill being a chef, but then they brought together and very quickly moved themselves out of the center, right? It wasn't ever named. And we, I remember these very clear discussions with Amanda and Merrill. It's not named Amanda and Merrill, it's named Food 52. And there was this inspiration at that point of the creators of the brand should be at the forefront. You know, the Glossiers, the Emily's of the world, you you very recognize the CEO as the face of the brand and the, and the feeling of the brand. But they stepped aside and they said, we want to make sure that home cooks are, and it's the brand that, you know, the feeling that you get from the community of being here, that was what they wanted to put at the center, which ultimately led to these like dinner parties that were happening across the country where, You know, people in Chicago that were part of that community would get together offline and share in the same love that they have for being home chefs and food and inspiration and were drawing upon that. 
I think that that could very well be this online and offline experience and sharing in the same passion that you have for the thing that brought you together. You know, if it's an NFT community, is there something there as well that you can sort of have that experience? And this has been this is not new, right? This exists all over the place in, in micro communities all over. It's exactly that is, and how much of that um, leader, that creator can continue to draw you back for more engagement and more, you know, so it's part of this, this push pull environment that I think will be interesting. And then I have the criticism of this is, are we going to be saturated on community? You know, like I'm sure we're all a part of dozens of Slack channels and it's really hard to care about all of them equally. So is there one that you're just going to love the most and be part of that? But, you know, arguably there ha this has to be, it's not, community is not for every brand. And so I think you as a creator have to be distinguishing of, is this a skill set that you're naturally really good at and can bring a different like vibe to this experience? Or are you just doing it because this is the new thing that everyone feels is that they have to have in, in the stack of your technology that is your brand? So I do think there's going to be uh, repercussions and pushback on oversaturation of community, but there will emerge these powerhouse uh, communities for sure. Yeah, that's though where I think monetization of these communities makes a lot of sense because I'm sure you're a part of dozens upon dozens of Slack channels. I'm upon dozens. And now like, I can't even like look at Slack, but at the same time, if I paid for one and then I probably would focus on that one. And then in terms of retention, you probably have a lot higher retention rate, unless of course the, the person churns for those that stay and are, are then probably engaged because they know, okay, I'm actually paying for this. Another thought that, that just comes to mind, I thought a really good article by another past guest of the show, Rishi Garg at Mayfield. And he said that how he believes in that creator or just building influence is kind of shifting from the me to the we where, and I think it's, as you describe it as the second layer where instead of you know trying to gain the most amount of followers on whichever distribution channel, it's shifting that mindset towards, I'm actually gonna be a gatekeeper and maybe be more of a facilitator to help you meet other people. Yeah, exactly. And I think of this also and how it's working from a brand perspective, like we're seeing brands that have, I would say traditionally been on the periphery, you know, whether it be, serving a certain audience like transgender or something to that point that never was in the center. Like if we think about Warby Parker, one of the first brands that we did at Lear Hippo, it was for people who wore glasses. That's a lot of people, you know, it wasn't gender specific or anything. And there's, there started to be this movement of gender around investing in consumer because we were starting to see D to C for a female led audience. Like we did Birchbox and Bobble Bar and Glossier, you know, which are all clearly like products skewed for, a female audience, but now you're getting this bifurcation of what are these edge communities that have never been taken care of or never had a voice. And those creators, those brands can easily shift to the we because it's speaking to a very specific type of audience that is looking for, you know, a community because it has been, it's never had one. And so I think that's another fascinating movement that we're seeing is these micro niche audiences that are being elevated as a group, you know, and so part of that, that we're interested in terms of, you know, to bring it back to what the opportunity that we see is, you know, the emerging C2C brands, what's the infrastructure that's going to power this movement and sustain that ability to be the facilitator to grow the we, you know, is it something on manufacturing, distribution, operations, payments, something that, again, helps the group 
stay together and, and revisit itself regularly. Like that's the infrastructure I find fascinating, but I think it's happening across multiple ecosystems right now, just given where we're at. What are maybe some examples of founders that really have impressed you the most when it comes to very early focus of community? Or is it something where community comes later that you don't start out with building a community or don't even think about that until you've kind of grown? Historically, you know, I would say Emily from Glossier was the first to bring community to our table at Lear Hippo. It was so obvious that when we saw this active group that she had engaged and was talking to and being able to now customize product for them. It was just so fascinating. It was like, oh, duh, of course, you know, and you should have that feeling, that reaction of like, of course this will work because it's already working. You're demonstrating very sticky channels and, and it goes back to the customer, right? This is something we're super passionate about at Hannah Gray is looking at brands and understanding technology businesses that are so, so focused on their customer. They know them inside and out. You can see the CEO taking regular conversations with that customer and there's a very clear channel there. And I think that's something that's unequivocally forefront right in the center. When when we talk to a founder that is deeply, deeply passionate about the customer base and solving this specific problem for the customer, and you see uh, in turn that there has been a workaround by the customer and that's where you know it's being streamlined by this technology solution or this brand is answering something that was like never there. If we take an example from Billy, right? How many women were subscribing to Harry's because there wasn't a brand that was you know razors for women in a subscription model. And so you just already had women are adhering to that behavior with Dollar Shave and Harry's and it was like, well, clearly we can service them in a better way and have a brand that's for them, which That was something I recognized the disconnect and was shopping for a team that was solving that problem. And then when I met Jason and Georgie of Billy, it was so clear that they had even better. Georgie had incredible strategy around how to speak to that customer in a way that they have never been spoken to before and educating them on pink tax and a number of things that I just was like, oh, of course, duh, like this makes so much sense. And you're thinking about it way better than I ever could. But that's where I think that clicks into place for me is I already understand the problem and I'm looking for a team that understands it so much deeper um, and already has better solutions. That's awesome. I know we've been off um, along this, down this line for the past 15 minutes and I absolutely love Mm -hmm. it. Maybe we should also talk about Hannah Gray and the founding story there. I know you you launched the fund during a pandemic. What was that like? (laughs) And as well, you know, just a, a little bit of the founding story. That'd be awesome. Yeah. um, So Jess and I have been friends since 2014 when we met in New York and uh, a friend, Ryan Bloomer, actually put us in touch. And it's such a sad story because it was like, you're a woman adventurer, you're a woman adventurer, you should meet. But I think Ryan was so great at seeing past just that. And he knew that we were both like kindred spirits of the same kind of DNA and he was matching us together. And that was very clearly recognized in our first meeting. I think Jess and I um, sort of have found this bond with each other around both how our work styles are, how we think, um, probably even how we talk at this point. We're on calls and we have the same thought and the same answer. It's as if she's answering for me. Like we're just so, we are like one brain at this point, which is just a fascinating whole nother topic to go through of how you're bonding essentially with your partner. And it's very cool because it's all been done relatively virtually. You know, I'm in Denver, she's in New York, but We've been talking about this for years. So it was just something that we knew was going to happen. Um, Hannah Gray is named after our daughters. We both have 
two daughters each. Um, but when we thought of the name for Hannah Gray, we each had one daughter. So we know we're going to give our other two complexes. We'll have to name something after them. So sad. Um, but her daughter is Rhea Hannah and mine is Gunnison Gray. It was something that was also the constant reminder and inspiration of like why we do anything is like once you have kids, you realize like all your energy and, and goes to them. And so it was just a good thing of we're doing this for future generations and, and also Selfishly, from a trademarking standpoint, it was wide open. There's, you wouldn't believe how hard it is to trademark a venture capital name these days. And so we wanted to do something that stood out. And also, given our background and understanding brand and how that can work for you as an asset, we wanted to take some of the learnings we had in the startups and bring it to venture capital in the same way and have it mean something. And so we are a first check venture fund investing in founders that are reimagining everyday work um, experiences to improve work and life. We're investing pre-seed and seed across the country. We invest in all types of human beings. Uh, we actually have a, an excellent track of backing women in uh, underrepresented founders and to the tune of 65% in our historic track. So that's something that's like well beyond the current numbers, but we want to continue to do that and hopefully improve on those numbers with Hannah Gray. And yeah, I'd say we're generalists. We're looking at a lot of things. We certainly believe in community-driven commerce, as we talked about, but also have other sectors in terms of more traditional, I'd say, SaaS investments, uh, artificial intelligence, data, marketplaces, education, fintech, that kind of thing. But we do believe that so much of the learnings we've seen in consumer over the last 13 years in my career and just as 11 is Coming through on the bottom-up B2B opportunity, there's so much in terms of what a worker now expects that experience because of how they've been trained on the consumer side for the last decade. And so we think that that's a huge asset into our B2B investing as well. How has the pandemic changed how you source, how you look at companies? I've heard investors on the show that said it's actually freed up a lot more time where they're able to see a lot more companies a lot more quickly. But is it harder to find that conviction? Um, it's a good question. I think this all boils down to, I think pre-seed investing is a very good mix of art and science. You know, it's not the same kind of growth stage math that's required because you don't have a lot to underwrite. So the underwriting becomes the psychology of the why, who is doing what, what's inspiring them. And it can't be go make gobs of money. Like we hope that that's the effect, but there's got to be some driving purpose that's very, very deep behind that. And so I'd say we spend much more time trying to understand the psychology of the person, the team, and what those drivers are, which again, I think, I, I feel like we're talking so much about art, but I do believe that this industry is very relationship driven. And so much of it is, this gut and art feeling of just this inspiration that you get when you talk to certain people and you see how inspired they are about building something. So I can't stress that enough that it is a little bit of magic and it's when you see it come together that it just can be explosive. But I'd say from a, a remote standpoint, you know, at New York, I had the luxury of seeing everyone all the time. You know, it was so easy to sort of move around the city and people were generally coming through New York on a regular cadence, which um, Jessica has experienced that, you know, she's still in New York. And that's also an asset to our firm is having coastal access, but also being authentically, you know, experiencing, like I authentically live in Denver, you know, and there's a different type of mentality of being uh, a founder in the middle of the country versus in San Francisco or New York. And I think we can appeal to that and certainly have empathy for that too. From a remote standpoint, we've actually been doing it for quite a while and I'm thrilled about this, you know, not having to get on a plane and, and push things off because of travel schedules. I really like the idea of reversing and having 
zoom up front for these relationships, right? Let's first get to know each other remotely and then deepen on the diligence side um, when we have more conviction and we're trying to make sure that we're doing reference checks and all of that. I think that's how we probably would foresee it going forward. From an efficiency standpoint, it allows us to come through a lot more deals relatively quickly and, and bubble up the ones that make sense to deepen um, on the diligence. <laughs> I had to do a lot of remote diligencing being in Denver and, and sourcing across the country with Galvanize. I invested in Billy when I was very, very pregnant with my first kid and actually couldn't get on a plane. So I had to do extra work to make sure that I was very, very sure about this team. And I think that's what everyone's experiencing now is if you had restrictions, how are you going to get more creative about solving the problem, which is generally what we're supposed to be doing in technology anyway. So I think that it's just forcing venture capital to get more creative around getting very sure and using other things than just saying, I just need to look the person in the eye and sit across them from coffee. Like, well, what else, what is the reasoning? Like asking much deeper questions around what are the things that are getting you comfortable and how can we reproduce that? So it's actually just doing the work to think more creatively. I think it's interesting because as you said, in the very early stages, it's kind of more art than science. Of course, because obviously you're investing really, you just have in a lot of cases, just the team, right? When you're first check in, you don't have any of the um, numbers or metrics that are just not there. You're investing in smaller check sizes than on a growth round, but at the same time, since you're investing in, in the team, in some ways, it actually almost makes sense to be there in person, right? To understand and connect with that person. I've also had a growth investor on the show that said, oh yeah, you know, we need to beat the person because of course we're writing so, so many checks. But at the same time, I'd imagine it's in some ways on the growth side, it's a bit easier in some ways because you have a lot more data, a lot more numbers to crunch. Yeah. And you also have references, right? Like a growth investor could call us up and say, what's it like being working with this founder for the last six years, pluses and minuses? There could be a founder fallout experience that already happened from the pre-seed stage. You know, Jess and I have only ever been pre-seed and seed investors. You know, it just wasn't called that back in the day, but it was first check-in. You know, I mean, when we did an investment in Venmo, it was actually called the Series A because that was the first letter in the alphabet and that's how it started. Um, but now we started with all these other terms. And so it generally talks about uh, the risk profile that you're willing to underwrite and how comfortable you are and what are the signals that you know are there. So we actually spend a lot of time looking at the macro and micro forcing functions of human behavior as an addition to how do we think about this team and their approach. And so what are those obviously tailwinds that are in place? And, and we're talking right now at a time where there's an excessive amount of tailwinds and, and areas that have never experienced this, you know, or I'd think about education because I just got off a phone call with an education company. And, you know, this is the time to be selling into schools. It was so much harder to get their interest level. And so that's, that's I think, where we're going to dissect and we look at the small behavior changes, both on the B2B side, but also in the human, what are these small micro movements that are happening? And again, encouraging these workarounds and getting people to look up from their devices and say, I care about X, you know, what is that that's contributing to the ability for adoption? Because if you don't have those macro and micro forcing functions, you're just going to pay for it in ad spend, you know, some way or another, it's just going to cost you so much more on your CAC to be able to get people to pay attention. So that's, I think, really analyzing the timing. So we spend a lot of time doing that too. How do you think about maybe mix in terms of B2B to B2C companies? I've heard a couple of people say that percentage doesn't matter as long as you're in the company. How do you think about like the right percentage for you and a little bit more of your actual portfolio strategy? 
Yeah, in terms of portfolio construction, it all depends what you're trying to achieve. Like it's go from going from that, right? If you're an angel investor, it's a different type of goal than satisfying institutional grade investors who have expectations on returns, right? You know, and that really becomes portfolio modeling, construction, anticipation, recycling, the ability to fully invest the full fund. And something that, you know, this is getting a little nuanced, but this is also analyzing the sectors. And I have a belief which I'm sure plenty share because I'm sure I got it from reading something. I can't remember what it was, but it was this. And then it was also checked with my gut of there is a gestation period in sectors that is different. You know, SAS is traditionally seven to nine years. Again, this is operating on a 10-year fund life cycle, which we know is actually extended right now. So bear with that. But, you know, in consumers, more like four to six years, FinTech historically has been like two to four, you know, in, in terms of demonstration of, how quickly they could exit, you know, and that's obviously thrown to the wind a bit with SPACs and just like crazy development on the private side. But you can see how that works in terms of adoption. And fintech is generally bought up relatively quickly because of just the aggressiveness in fintech. And PayPal buys a lot of things. Um, you know, Venmo is an example of that. And But consumer, if it hits, it hits relatively quickly. And so if we're talking about the J curve, which is the thing that most people as individuals and, and as family offices investing in funds don't like experiencing the J-curve. That dip is really pa- painful. And if you can place some of those bets distributed across your portfolio construction, but thinking about the time horizon, you know, do you want to make a SaaS investment at the very end of your fund cycle when you know it's going to take seven to nine years to gestate to get the returns that you need? Or like in the case with, we made um, the investment in Billy at the very end of our um, fund at Galvanize Upslope Ventures. And it took off instantly and was able to demonstrate returns really, really quickly for that portfolio that was older. And so there's an interesting, I think, like if you can, again, you can't time the market, but if you can sort of think about portfolio construction, and we think about this as a generalist, there is strategy there and there is the ability to influence and time your returns a little bit to, you know, think about the whole portfolio in hindsight, which is hard to do, but it's something we're aware of and we're trying to be conscious of how we're constructing things and not just haphazardly letting those deals come to us. There has to be an opinion and a strategy. And and, and you know that from, and I know that from having looked at, you know, and managed five funds now and seeing what historically that behavior and where we could have made those changes. Um, but yeah, from a ownership perspective, if you're trying to build your brand, getting in is, is getting in, like it's great, you know, access is key in this industry, but then of course you see this at the end with the portfolio, had I only just owned a little bit more of those winners, which is the feeling every venture capitalist has ever, but it's also being tempering that with, you know, how much risk are we willing to take? What are those indicators? And so constantly underwriting the data when you have it. I mean, we do, um, we underwrite every quarter versus once a year. And so we really watch the companies very closely in terms of performance to understand what's the IRR going to be on the next round of capital that they're going to ask and what does that look like? So it's much more around how does this affect the entire overall construction, not just how do I feel about that company today? And do we still like the directions of the founders going into? You have to think about it from a perspective of IRR and, and money back. What is one thing you would change about venture capital? I think it's changing now, right? It's diversity. I know that's probably a a hot topic right now, but I like the feeling of that change, you know, having been in rooms where I felt like the only, and I want to be clear that like I was the only woman in those rooms for a long time, but I always felt welcome. 
And I think that was just, I'm going to just credit myself on picking great guys to work with. Like they were incredibly supportive. And I know that that wasn't the experience for a lot of my female peers. And and I say female because I think that was the first wave of diversity, right? It was like including, you know, and making it welcoming for, for anyone to be in this. You know, I have a bet and I'm sure everyone in the private sector shares this bet that private is just going to continue to grow at multiple speeds. You know, I, if you are um, lucky enough to be an investor period in the public markets and you have a portfolio at all as a wealthier person, you're going to have equally as much exposure in the private side going forward. And I think that's just going to be true of anyone. There's just going to be this unifying um, opportunity for access. We already see a lot of companies trying to demonstrate that, that we could talk about. But I think that the more people we have with different opinions and different ideas is going to lead to just understanding opportunities that have just not historically been seen. And I think that will lead to incredible businesses. So I'm excited to be collaborating with people who have very different sector specific, you know, knowledge that they're bringing to the table. And it's not just about the same colleges, the same background, et cetera. I think there's, there's just going to be a ton of creativity around business, which I find really exciting. And so I'm looking forward to championing more uh, funds that have that and trying to bring more groups into the fold. Cause I think it'll ultimately result in a better private market access. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Um, I'm going to, I would say, champion my friend here because it's both two things. How to Raise a Venture Capital Fund by Winter Mead. I'd say my work and my uh, personal life are, are like the same thing right now. And Jessica and I went through Operator, which is like the Y Combinator of Emerging Managers program with Winter. And he is just wise beyond his years. But the program he's designed and set up, I think was like, the perfect time to distribute it for COVID. And so everything in this book, I think also derives a lot of that, those learnings is forcing you to go, as we talked about, is like, how do you diligence a company remotely? Like going layers deep into asking why, 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 why is this that? If that's the case, then why? You know, and really pushing the envelope to understanding the forcing functions that create something to be is is just something that's fascinating to me. I love the business of venture capital all the way down to the audits. And so I feel as though I'm still a student and an apprentice of this trade. And anything I can get my hands on that make me better in understanding the historical designs and then also the opportunities for innovation is like right up my alley right now. That's awesome. I'm also really happy that you mentioned that book because no one has mentioned it yet. So you're very original, very original, Kate. Buy it on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, but again, Winter is just a wealth of knowledge. And I really like how he's pushing the envelopes and trying to understand, you know, advanced structures on fund of funds and venture capital. And just, again, the private sector is ripe for disruption right now. And so there's just a lot of opportunities in the capital stack that can be innovated on. And I like that he's working with emerging managers to create more creative structures and also working with fund of funds to do the same. Final question to you is, what's the best piece of advice that you've received? It's got to be from Kenny Lear. He was just the best guy to work with ever. I feel like every day it was just sitting next to him and just taking in. It was just like a constant knowledge dump. He was, he was awesome. He said something to me once that was just really funny because it was always very funny in, in delivery. It was, uh, you know, there are two people in this world, people who get on the phone and tell you exactly what they want right away. Or there's ones that like talk, talk, talk. And then they, just as you're we about to hang up, they tell you what they want. Um, he's like, don't be the latter, be the former. <laughs> and it's just something that's small, but it, 
it also means to being, it talks about being transparent, which I think is crucial now. And, you know, just being really open with what it is that you're looking for and how you're willing to reciprocate. So I used to call them like my Lear lessons when he'd be dropping knowledge on me most days, but I loved those and, and I miss those daily nuggets from him. Kate, this has been so much fun. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Um, This is awesome. I can't wait to be more involved with your podcast. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Kate. You can follow her on Twitter at KShillow. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.